Um, so, someone asked me just a moment ago, how many times have I given this presentation? Uh, I've lost count now. Um, my, my fear is of becoming known as the trans pastor, but um, <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. Um, so what happened was uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine, maybe I shouldn't call him a friend, but uh, he told the Denver Society of Creation, Pastor Packer has a, uh, a presentation on this topic. I did not have a presentation on that topic. I had to spend a year preparing to present at the Denver Society of Creation. Um, and then I've written several times on it, um, including most recently a chapter for a book, and I presented on it multiple times to laity and pastors and to our high school youth uh, a couple weeks ago. So it's something I've done a lot of work with, not because I really want to. I find it rather sad and depressing to talk about, quite honestly, but because it's necessary. Like, this is, like, what we're dealing with. In fact, um, things change so quickly, it's hard for me to keep up. But if you saw, there's an article, um, I believe it was on Fox News yesterday, an AI, uh, one of these AI things spit out a verse, a new Bible verse. Have you guys seen this? That was in support of transgenderism. Like, that just happened, like, this week. Um, and then, um, when was it? Like, a week or two ago, there was the, the man who crushed the Canadian weightlifting competition like by like 400 pounds it wasn't even close like it was like ridiculous and he won of course i mean you know we've also had a woman win man of the year we've had a, a woman um it was it was it netherlands where it was a man who won the competition and if you saw him compared to the woman who came in second it's clear that it wasn't because he was the prettiest bell at the ball right it was clearly ideology driving that decision um so it's all around us now and in fact um a uh, pastor, he's a reformed pastor in Washington, I'm friends with, uh, this must be from the Wall Street Journal, posted this, this is interesting, 0.5%, um, that's the percentage of Americans over 18 who identify as transgender, so that's grown astronomically, even though it's still a small number, 19% is a percentage of Americans who identify as transgender who have undergone sex reassignment surgery. So 20% of that 0.5% have undergone surgery. 1.9 billion. That is how much money they've made so far in transgender surgeries. If you look at a map from like 10 years ago of like where these places you get these surgeries done was, it was like three tiny specks on a map. If you look now, it's the whole country. And it's, a lot of this is being driven, it's 1.9 billion industry that's gonna grow 11.2% over the next eight years. So there's a lot of money to be had in this. Um, I mentioned that because I think it's important to keep in mind that some of this is purely about money, among other things. But we're going to look at uh, several things with it. Does anyone know, um, off the top of your head, what percentage historically had gender dysphoria? What percentage of the population historically? 0 0.01. Almost nothing. Um, do you know how many girls ages uh, 11 to 21 before 2012 transitioned from female to male? The answer is zero. Zero. It was unheard of. But now that's the largest group. Right? So we're going to be looking at some of that. What I want to do is I want to look at several things. Um, I've reordered this over the, year, uh, over the last few years as I give it and try to find better ways to present it. Um, we're going to look at how did we get here briefly. 
I want to look at the history. This is not new. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. Um, the history of this and then uh, the satanic attack on it. Then we're going to look at some of the, the issues we're facing culturally. And then how do we combat and help people? So that's, that's going to be how we're going to attack this. Um, I will try to save a lot of time at the end for questions. I'm going to probably cut stuff out just for time to get through everything. But um, we will have to move somewhat fast to cover what I would like to cover. Um, so this is really, the, how we got here today is really complex. We're talking about hundreds of years of philosophical thought that have got us to where we are today. This didn't just happen overnight. This isn't like people just woke up one morning and were like, hey, let's try something new. No, this has been going on for a while. Um, Carl Truman wrote a book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Don't get that book. He has a, a bridge version of that book. I can't remember its title, but look for Carl Truman. Um, it's, uh, it has the same cover and everything. It looks very similar, but it has a different title. That's the bridge purse book. It's a very hard book to get through. It's philosophically very dense, but his, his other version is for people who aren't as into philosophy, so, so get that one. But if I could um, sum up, like greatly oversimplify, we have two things, and especially you've seen them spiraling out of control since the 60s. Um, but it goes back much further than that. The first is uh, your feelings are the center of the universe, which we hear as follow your hearts, right? So follow your hearts is, is part of this. The second part is that you have the will and power to be and do whatever your heart desires. So combine those two and then introduce technology that makes these kind of surgeries more possible than ever before, and you get what we have today. Follow your heart. So if your heart tells you that you are a man trapped in a woman's body, then your heart's obviously right. It can't be wrong. And you're told then on top of that, you have the power to do something about this. You can be whatever you want to be. And so you combine those two things together and you get what we have today. Because if you don't follow your heart, the culture and the zeitgeist says, then you can't be really who you truly are. So you have to follow your heart. You must do this. And you have the power to make it happen. Now, that's clearly at odds with how the Bible describes this when it says your heart is simply wicked and evil above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17. Uh, it's a little bit different take on these, these things. It's also why, by the way, um, as a parent, I'm much more concerned about movies and shows that have this theme of follow your heart no matter what versus like some swear words or like something like that. Like we're often like concerned about the wrong thing. <laughs> like your kids being told to follow their hearts much more damaging to them spiritually than hearing some bad words. It just is like, it's way worse. Um, but yeah, that's what we often hear parents stressing about. All right. Um, so this is not, this is not new by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when I was studying for this, and I, have, I gave you uh, your handout, some resources on this, this topic. There's a new book out that I haven't read yet. It doesn't seem to offer anything new, but I heard it's quite good, um, but it's not on there. And I'm not gonna recommend it because I haven't read it yet, but I've read all the ones on your, your list. Uh, I was struggling with some things as I looked at it, trying to find, I felt like there's a missing piece to it. And I found it in my research, and it's that this idea of androgyny um, being like the pagan sexual ideal. That this has been going on for thousands of years. So I want to see how, how they got there. The first thing to understand is that Satan hates the created order. He hates hierarchy. 
He hates God's design and intent. He hates the way God created things. And so he's constantly attacking that. And this has been going on since the garden. In fact, this sounds weird, but he hates sex. He's fine with sex being abused and misused, but actual sex is God's created order and gift to us he hates. Right? He hates everything God does and the order God does things in. So the war is on gender. It's not between the genders. Or better, the war is on the sexes, not between the sexes. Satan has tricked everyone into thinking that it's men versus women, but really Satan's just trying to destroy both. And so while we're all caught up arguing about men versus women issues, Satan's just destroying both man and woman, male and female. And we're caught up in oftentimes silly and useless debates about men versus women when Satan's just trying to destroy everything. Um, so the, the issue is not hatred for women or hatred for men. It's androgyny, which is destroying all sexual distinctions. And so there's religious roots that go back quite far on this stuff. Um, so paganism and the Bible have their view of sexuality, and there's no neutral ground here. So we have to see this in terms of a spiritual battle, and that's what I want to, want to lay out. Um, and so I came across a guy, his name's Peter Jones. Uh, he has some really great videos on YouTube on some of these topics, but he wrote a paper in 2000, 23 years ago, called Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal. And in that paper, he describes ancient practices so if you went to the Sumerians, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all throughout the ancient world, what was often considered the highest point you could arrive at was a priest who was androgynous. And um, that usually involved just full-on castrating a male, and then they would dress him up. And there's some weird stories about how this all took place that I'll spare you from now for time, but if you look into these things, there's some really crazy stuff. Even, like, they'd be baptized in bull's blood. Uh, sometimes a family in town would be responsible for giving them women's clothing. Like, it's, it's insane. Like, literally insane, the kind of stuff that's um, happened. And so this is something that um, you have to be aware of because it's not new. The new thing is, and this is kind of weird, we are worse off than the pagans of old because the pagans of old kept it to religious stuff, like their priests. We have applied it to all of society. They knew better than to do that because it would destroy society, right? They knew that if they did it to society, it would be a, a bad thing to do. Um, we have applied it to all of society, and so now we're, we're dealing with the consequences of this. Um, and behind all of this is an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, and I don't want to get too far into explaining all Gnosticism, but some of the basics of it are is that the material world is, is bad and that spirit stuff is good. And so physically then, this is how this plays out, androgyny. In fact, androgyny was seen as a symbol of salvation. All the way from the pagans to Christian Gnostics, it's been seen as a symbol of salvation. Um, in fact, um, there was a, uh, commentary I had to use in seminary um, on Galatians. And there was a footnote that said, in the new heavens and new earth, we will all be androgynous. Which is not true. It's based on Paul saying there's neither male nor female. All that means in Galatians is, uh, I'm not saved differently than a female because I'm male. Like in Christ, we're all saved by the blood the same way. That's the point of that verse. 
Um, not that there's no male or female. Paul gives directions to males and to females separately in the same book. Um, but this commentary argued that, and it's, it's not new. Um, the largest satanic um, meeting that's ever taken place in the United States took place last year outside of Phoenix. And if you're familiar with satanic temples and stuff, <laughs> which most of you probably aren't, um, <laughs> hopefully. But if you're familiar with any of this stuff, uh, Baphomet, the big statue, if you've seen these statues on the news, these big statues they have at these places, Baphomet is an androgynous statue. It's got male and female parts. Again, like this stuff is not new. And when people act like it's new, we're, we're missing, I think, this big part that Satan's been doing this stuff for thousands of years. He's been on the attack trying to destroy. Um, even in, in modern times, uh, I've seen this on the internet recently, but if you look at some of the research, um, those who are homosexual and those who are trans are considered to be higher spiritually than the rest of us. They're closer to God because of this. And so Peter Jones wrote this 23 years ago. See if this sounds right. Sounds familiar. Some powerful leaders see the future as the brave new global world of sexual and spiritual pluralism, where liberty of self-expression in these areas is the essence of human progress. Hmm. One could even imagine a society of pagan religious syncretism, where bisexuality and homosexual androgyny would be the spiritual and social ideal. The sexuality of choice for those in power. While heterosexuality could be tolerated, considered inferior, and strictly controlled, for it has happened before. So, does that sound a little familiar to what's going on right at this moment? How was he able to write this 23 years ago? Because he looked at it and said, homosexuality is on the rise. And generally, homosexuality being on the rise is tied in with paganism going on in the culture at large. And so he just looked at it and said, this is what's happened before. It's going to happen again. And we're literally living in what he just described, said could happen in the future. That's where we're at. Look at how many cabinet members and various people in high-level government positions are transgender. Like, it's kind of shocking, like, to, to think about. Um, you know, even people, like, in charge of, like, health. <laughs> I mean, think, like, St. Anthony the Great said, there's a time coming... Uh, when the world will go mad, it will say, you are mad, you are not like us, right? Chesterton said 100 years ago, because he was also quite uh, prophetic, he could see, he could read the times quite well, who said there would come a time when people couldn't, you couldn't say two plus two equals four, you couldn't say a triangle has three sides, like, you know. He also said, though, he said this 100 years ago, this kind of stuff will die out because, basically, they can't have kids, now, he didn't see the reproductive technology we see today that allows some of these people to have kids that couldn't, but um, he said they'll die out in a generation because of this. So, ritual androgyny, typified in um, somnity and homosexual practice, was the sacrament of ancient paganism. And it's a direct attack and assault on God's created order. It's a direct assault on the distinction between creator and creation. It is, going back to the garden... Um, you shall be like God. You can make yourself in whatever image you would like to make yourself. Right? It's behind all of this. It's the same temptation as in the garden. It's no difference. You're going to be a God and you're going to make yourself after whatever image you would like to make yourself. Now, part of this too, um, if you look at what's not just that issue, but if you step back. So um, there's been various waves of feminism. Um, 
And you have to distinguish them to, to understand what's happened historically. But uh, first wave feminism um, did, did have some, some good and notable things that they pointed out and brought out. Um, however, since then, if you look at the fruit of these things, one of the things they've constantly pushed is that there's no difference between men and women. That there's no difference between male and female. That they're just the same. In fact, I would argue that a lot of what you hear in uh, so-called conservative news makes a huge blunder because they will start to talk as if the only difference between men and women is physical. But again, that's, that's not true. It's absolutely 100% not true. Uh, we are different, and God's created us that way, and it's not just the physical differences. That's part of it, absolutely. It should be the most obvious part of it. Um, it's not anymore, but it should be. It should be the most obvious thing. Um, and so um, Pastor Walter didn't get to this last week, but he had on his handout uh, about women's ordination. Women's ordination comes from a lot of these same kind of currents running through history, uh, including one that I haven't even talked about that's related to all of this, which is consumerism. We all have a mentality that we just go buy and get whatever we want to make ourselves happy. Uh, and people pick churches that way, right? So you pick the church based on what makes you happy, and if the church isn't going to do it, you're going to take your business elsewhere because you view the church as a business just like any other business. That's what people do, right? I come to church. This isn't what I want. Um, what I would like is a female pastor. And if I can give that to me, I'm going to go to a place that will, right? But all of the same thinking is behind all of this. Um, it's a, it's a fail, failure to distinguish that God made male and female different and that they're created for different roles and purposes. It doesn't make one better than the other, Right? One of my favorite analogies for this is the hammer and the teacup. If you're going to pound in a nail, would you grab a teacup? Would you? Honestly, would you grab a teacup? Is that absurd? Why? What happened if I tried to pound in a nail with a teacup? Is that the teacup's fault? Is that what it was designed for? So whose fault is it? The person who thought it'd be a good idea to try that. Right? You can't take something that God designed for one thing and try to force it to do something else and then look at the results and be like, well, that didn't work out the way I thought it would. Um, God's created men and women differently. He's given us unique roles and vocations and duties within those. More on that in a moment. Um, and that actually matters. Um, and I've mentioned this before, but I think it's important to understand what we're seeing. Sometimes I hear people say, that will bring God's judgment on us, all of these things, but... This is God's judgment on us. Read Romans chapter 1. The confusion over all of these things is God's judgment upon this nation and the world. Um, right? If you've slaughtered 60 million babies since 1973, uh, there's going to be consequences. Romans 1 is clear about this. And a sexual confusion is a big part of this. It's all laid out for us. Um, all right. Before getting to the biblical answer, I do want to go over some cultural issues, especially because I think it's helpful for parents to understand and grandparents. Um, some things we have to understand. Gender dysphoria is a real thing. There are people that actually have gender dysphoria. Typically, 0.01% is pretty small. And typically, they were helped with counseling and other things. And most of them grew out of it by the time they got through the crazy hormonal stages of teenage years in their early 20s. Most of them grew out of it and felt comfortable in their own bodies again. Um, so that's a real thing, we have to understand that. 
because of sin, because of the fall, for various reasons, the body and soul can feel out of joints. People can feel trapped in a body that doesn't feel right for them. Um, and especially teenagers who are going through all kinds of insane changes in their bodies are obviously going to feel out of place with their body. Like, that's part of like, being a teenager. That's part of growing up. You don't feel quite right. Um, so we have all of these things going on. And Abigail Schreier wrote a book. It's a really super depressing book. I could only read a chapter at a time called, um, it's on your, your handout there, Irreversible Damage. She is not a Christian, and so I think she misses the, the spiritual component, but she does get the cultural issues that have led us here. So I'm going to paraphrase and condense a lot of what she said. She, her book is an interview of tons of parents whose girls transition to become boys. And every single one of them, every single parent she talked to was shocked and surprised that their child came to them and said, I'm going to do this. They knew their kids were struggling with various things. They knew their kids were having a hard time, but they did not see this part of it coming. Um, around high school, early college, they would just come and say, I'm a boy. Um, and she pieced together the common elements that seemed to be at work in all of these families. The first was, no surprise, social media. Nearly all of these girls were brainwashed through YouTube videos, Instagram stories, and a place called DeviantArt. There's also a place called The Trevor Project, which you see advertised some, sometimes as supporting various sports leagues and events. It's supposed to be a helpline for people struggling with these issues, but really it's just a place to push them further into it. More on that problem in a moment. What happens in nearly all of these videos on social media is a person who's gone through it will say, I struggled with these feelings and now I've done this and now I'm all better. Which, by the way, is objectively not true. We have all the studies on that now too. Almost never true. And they'll say, your parents or your pastor or whoever is telling you not to do this is the enemy. And you need to cut yourself off from them. So they're isolating them from the people that actually care enough to stop them. And that, that's, that's a big first step in every single case that she explores. Um, I mean, part of this is, like, as a parent, I can tell you it's pretty much impossible. I mean, you could attempt to keep your kids from all, every single form of social media. But it's probably just not going to happen. Like, we're in a wild, wired world. So you have to teach your kids how to think biblically and, and have wisdom and monitor what they're doing online. But to think you're just going to avoid it altogether, I, I just don't see it happening. Like, it's just, I don't think it's an unreasonable, because even once I hit 18, um, you know, I, I went, to, I lived in Greenville, South Carolina, where there's a huge fundamentalist school you may have heard of, Bob Jones University. And a lot of those kids grew up not being allowed to ever drink and were told any alcohol drinking any alcohol at all is a sin you're drunk well, when they got to college guess what they were some of the worst partiers in the entire city right they were known for these raging uh alcoholic parties um so you know just because you cut them off now doesn't mean that when they're 18 it's not just going to be a million times worse so teaching them wisdom with those things i think is, is helpful um, another reason this is so effective social media is because, and this is true of boys and girls, people just don't have friendships the way they used to when most of you were growing up. It's very different. A lot of their friendships and relationships are mediated through, through tech. It's not as much face-to-face. -face. Um, and one of the things 
we really have to encourage with our kids is to get together with flesh and blood people and to have real friends who are flesh and blood who can say, yeah, I'm struggling with the same things and like encourage each other down a good path. Because what happens when they're cut off and isolated and lonely is they seek out help online. And everything online is pushing them in the wrong direction. Not everything, but everything they're going to find if they go searching for this stuff. Um, three, peer contagion. Um, so this is interesting. So they get cut off from people and they get social media and it pushes them in direction. And then they go and seek out like-minded people at their school. And those people will accept them and say, yeah, I'm just like you. Or they'll seek them out to be accepted. Like maybe at first they didn't really think they were like that, but, but now this group will accept them and they feel weird and awkward and this group will take them in and say, this is great, you're one of us. Now, if you remember, when, when I was in high school, um, it wasn't this stuff, it was uh, a different issue. It was anorexia and bulimia. So in the 90s, that was huge. And that was a pure contagion, like it spread because peer-to-peer kind of stuff, right? However, in the 90s, you didn't have Instagram, YouTube, all these other things that can push it 100 times worse. So if you want to know why the skyrocketing numbers went from 0% to now the biggest group transitioning is 11 to 21-year-old girls, it's because of that change. I mean, it's a monumental shift in, in things. Uh, and so it's spreading rapidly as a pure contagion because of the access they have to these things. And then they get sucked into a group and they finally fit in. Um, in fact, this is quite common. Friend groups came out all together at the same time. Is that gender dysphoria? No. In fact, a lot of these kids in this book never showed any signs of gender dysphoria when they were young, which is common if someone actually has gender dysphoria. None of them really showed that. But all of a sudden now they're having struggles with their body. Uh, And Abigail Charter's point is it came through not from within themselves, but from feeding from outside of themselves change their own view of their body and um, who they are. Um, Part of this then too is wicked counselors. So they go to a school counselor, they go to even a regular counselor and the counselor says, yeah, you're right, that's who you are. You should start, you should should do this to be happy. Um, And this can include encouraging hormones and uh, then of course mutilating themselves. One thing, a lie that's going on out there right now that you have to know is that this, there's this lie that the hormone therapies do not damage them long-term. Think about how insane that is, just to say. Like, if you don't know anything about biology, if you're taking a kid who's going through the normal steps of puberty and you put chemical, chemicals in them to stop it, and you think that's not going to have a long-term impact on them and their bodies, that's insane. It's an outright lie. We, we have the data to back this up and say, of course it's hurting them, like obviously. But they'll cover that up. This includes doctors too. People go to doctors who are pushing this. Because again, $2 billion, <laughs> quite frankly, you get a lot of, you get paid a lot of money for this. Um, there are whole hospitals. There was a hospital in Texas. I don't know if you guys saw this one. Um, there's been uh, some extensive reporting on this. They said they would no longer do these surgeries. They were legally stopped from it. But then, of course, two weeks later, they were turning around and doing it. Like, they didn't stop. They stopped for, like, a couple of days, and they continued with it. Um, another big thing is uh, a lot of this is taking place. I've seen this a lot in just this last week. Several stories of parents uh, suing public schools from hiding this from, from the parents. 
they will use their preferred pronouns and genders at school and um, they won't tell the parents anything about this. In Colorado, it, you, if you're a public school, you're legally required to teach LGBTQ history, the legal requirements. And that was often the, you know, the camel gave his nose in the tent and then that's how they push it. Is it required here? Okay. Yeah, I did. I don't know the, the state laws here on that, but um, so that's often what would happen. Um, when I was shortly before we left Colorado, uh, our pediatrician office of ten years had all the doctors put their pronouns on on their website, and I took my kids out immediately because I can't trust them. Like if they're putting their pronouns on the web page, they've bought into the lies, and so I can't trust them as a doctor's office to not do things behind my back with my kids. I just can't. So we pulled them immediately. They never went there again. Um, and we loved them. They were a great pediatrician's office. Um, but, um, you know, with that going on, we didn't want to trust them with our kids. Uh, so all of these things are happening, like, all around us. And it's pushing people in this direction. Like, it really is. It's, it's a societal thing. It's a push. Um, and so most people that they talk to are going to say, yeah, this is who you were made to be. Um, you just need to, to become this. And it's, they're, essentially it's brainwashing, quite honestly. I mean, I'll make a point in a moment, but we should think about it now. Like we should not see these people as enemies. Most of them are captives to the devil and to these wicked people that are doing these things to them. A 13 year old kid does not know any better about this. Like, they're not even allowed to drink or vote or anything. I mean, and yet they're allowed to, to make these life-changing decisions. In some states, your kids can be taken from you if you don't affirm these things. Um, Minnesota is one who's passed things recently. Um, there's other states where they've tr tried to do it, at least. Um, there's a number of parents in court over this very issue. And sometimes it'll be like a divorced couple uh, maybe, like in one case, I'm thinking of that made national news for, for a long time. The mom was really pushing it. When he was with his dad, he acted and thought and talked and played like a boy. When he was with his mom, she dressed him up like a girl. And she was winning all the court battles. Because she said, this is what he is and this is what he needs. Um, so, at its core, though, this is a spiritual issue. Think about it. I mentioned it in the sermon last week, but everyone's looking for identity, security, and meaning. And they're finding it in this new identity or in creating their own identity. This is, by the way, why Wiccan was for a long time the fastest growing religion in the United States. The reason Wicca was so, grew so quickly is because uh, if you were involved in Wicca, you create your own god or goddess. Like, you tailor make it. Which, <laughs> You know, it's like the Bible says, like, right, you cut down a tree and you use some of it for fire and you use some of it to shape an idol and you don't see the, how insane that is. You get to pick your own God and make up your own God. And now it's growing like that. And now that's kind of, this is the same thing here. You're just becoming your own God. You have power to shape whoever you are and be whoever you want to be. So then people will say things like they're non-binary. I'm neither male nor female. What does that even mean? Or a lot, of, a lot of kids now are saying they're bi. Like, they like boys and girls. But most of those kids are dating members of the opposite sex. It's a cool thing to say. It's part of peer contagion. I say that and I look cool. 
And a lot of them just say it to be accepted by others and be looked at to be cool, but most of them are dating people of the opposite sex. Um, it doesn't make any rational sense, quite frankly. Which is why we have to understand it's not just psychological and emotional battle, but it's a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual battle. Um, that's one thing, more than anything, I want us to understand because I think it's missing from most of the research and stuff I hear talked about. This is a spiritual battle waged by Satan against mankind. It's demonic through and through. Um, uh, one thing I haven't pointed out, um, I've tried to be careful with it, but it's hard because the way we use these words. Sex means male or female. Gender typically was reserved for you talking about languages, right? So in, in, if you've learned foreign languages, you often know, like, for example, I'll just use Latin, um, right? That there's, there's masculine words, feminine words, and neuter words, right? Um, gender was used to talk about that kind of stuff. In our day and age, for a while, sex and gender meant the same thing. Okay, so sex, male and female, gender, male and female, same thing. A gender reveal party meant, is it a boy or a girl? But now that's not what they mean when they use the word gender. Gender means a social construct wherein you say whatever you are, and that's different than your biological sex. So your biological sex may be male or female, but who you really are, your gender, is what you feel inside. Going back to what we talked about following your heart and then the power to follow it. So they distinguish those two things. So you have to be careful when you hear people talking about this, because when they say gender, they often, that's usually what they mean anymore. It's this made up thing. And you come in and say, no, there's two genders, male and female, and you're talking about, you're on, you're on a different topic. Right? You're talking about something different now. Because in their world, gender's all made up anyway. So if you come in and say there's only two, they have no idea what you're talking about. Because it's all made up. I, I think that the, um, the culture at large now sees biology as offensive. Like if you say you're a biological woman or a biological male, they don't even use because you know I have biology too. But um, yeah, I just, I've read an article recently where a girl failed an assignment because she used biological male instead yeah. of transgender male or whatever consistently. Yeah, um, it's often attributed to Martin Luther, but I'm not sure he was the first one to say that um, when you reject the truth, you believe the fairy tale, like you'll believe anything, right? And so the so-called people that say there's so much about science, right, always in our face about how scientific they are and that our belief in God and other things are anti-science. I talk, try to talk to people about science right now. Like everything's made up. I mean, you can't really live like that but that's a different discussion for a different day. You can't live within that worldview. It's impossible. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, you know, for example, trying to have a baby. <laughs> that just proves all of that really fast, right? Um, doesn't matter what you claim to be. Like, at that point, there, there's certain rules to these things that apply. Um, so let's look at uh, the more positive side of things now. God's ordered... Uh, so Genesis 1 through 3 is the foundation for all of reality. And God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Um, so that's, that's where we start for everything, is God defining uh, the world for us. And God says there are two sexes, male and female, and that's his design, it's his plan, it's his intent. 
That's the way he wants it. Um, so if we can paraphrase Jesus, what God has created, male and female, let no man seek to reverse or undo. Luther has this line in his Genesis commentary, a man cannot make himself a woman. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Luther, if you had lived long enough to, <laughs> to see it. But he's, is he still right, even if, uh, even if people think they're doing that. I mean, because they're not, right? If you check their DNA, or like people have said, when you die and we find your skeleton, like the hips don't lie, to paraphrase Shakira. Um, that is the great theologian. Um, anyway, um, so that God has created you male or female, it actually means something that matters. You will be raised up on the last day and you will be male or female based on what you are right now, what God created you to be. You'll be that for all eternity. You'll be in a resurrected body that is male or female for all eternity based on what you are right now. It's not an accident or a happenstance that you happen to be male or female. It's God's order for you. It's what God created you to be and you will be that for all eternity. You don't escape that. It's built into who you are. That's not something you just cast off, right? When your body is raised up and your reunited body and soul for all eternity, the way you were always meant to be without sin, you'll be perfect and holy who you're meant to be as a male or a female. Because that's what God created you. And you'll be that for all eternity. It's not an accident. Um, Dr. Kleinig, and, and one of the, probably the best, one of the best books on that list, um, Kleinig's Wonderfully Made, A Protestant Theology of the Body. Uh, Dr. Kleinig is just brilliant and great in everything he does, and that book's no exception. Um, he says you're an embodied mind, a mindful body. Your body doesn't lie, right? Your DNA, your anatomy reveals who God created you to be. So male and female isn't only this, as I was saying a moment ago. It's not just these physical differences, but it's, it's not less than this either. <laughs> it's, it's not less than that. Like, that's the bare minimum starting point for these things. Uh, and so God's design includes living bodily as a male or female. Your body matters. Kleinig again, he says, male and female bodies qualify you for certain vocations. No matter what the world says, we know a male cannot be a mother. This is impossibility. Right? Only a female can be a mother. Only a male can be a father. Right? Who you are as a male or female is going to affect the way you, right? That a father is a male and that has a great impact on the family. Read the studies on this stuff. Men interact differently with their kids than the moms and it has a huge impact on them and vice versa. Like they were meant to do this together as male and female, right? Um, and so even our, our bodies and the creative differences affect what vocations we have. Um, so to treat our bodies, our sex, as an indifferent, inconsequential, and important part of our lives is to reject God's good gifts and created order of these things. Um, a term I came across, which I like, except for they do use the word gendered in it, but eh, nothing's perfect. Uh, gendered piety. That your sexuality is such an important part of your nature that I really love this. A man can be masculine without being virtuous but he cannot be virtuous without being masculine. So you can be masculine or feminine and not be virtuous. But as a Christian, you cannot be virtuous, right? Um, if you're a man without being masculine and if you're a female without being feminine, like those are built into you. The way a man shows his piety is gonna look different than his wife or than a woman because we're different. 
And that's okay. That's the way God created it to be for our good and for our benefits. Um, let's see. I'm going to skip some stuff. Um, I, I, w- I always like to add here, too, because so stereotypes about what is masculine and feminine do not mean the same thing as what the Bible says masculine and feminine, right? So to use extreme caricature that we have kind of in certain circles today, um, like ha- if, just because you have, have guns and a big pickup truck does not mean you're more masculine than someone who does not, who drives a smaller car. Like, you know, just because you're into like the arts and music and not sports does not mean you're like less masculine. Like, so we have, to, we have to step back and view these things from a biblical perspective and not just say, well, this is what masculinity looks like in our culture. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. But um, in fact, uh, I came across recently um, a summary of a book. It was a book review on firstthings.com um, by Nancy Pierce, who's written some really good stuff over the years. I haven't read this book yet, though. But she talks about the, the, the um, so-called good man like in, in our circles, uh, real man versus good man. And she says the real man in our society often is this like kind of like machismo kind of stuff. Like what I described, guns, big pickup trucks, like just obsessed with sports all the time. Whereas the good man in the Bible is defined not by those things, but by what? How he reflects Christ. Those, those are not the same identical thing. Um, it's not that you can't reflect Christ and have guns and pickup trucks and stuff, uh, but that that's not that in of itself doesn't make you a good man just because you do those things, or make you masculine because you do those things, right? Um, and that's her point: is that Christianity redefines some of this based on Christ, who is uh, the, the man of man's, if you will. Um, and so this we have to remember too. Uh, I can't remember who gave the speech. But I've ripped it off a lot over the years. Uh, he tells a speech at a, a college graduation of these two fish in, in the water, and the younger fish and his friends swim by this older fish. And the older fish says, how's the water? And uh, they look at each other puzzled and swim on, and they say, what's water? They don't, they don't know what they're swimming in, right? And that's very much how it is for us and, and what's going on around us. We often don't realize how much we're influenced by just what's going on around us all the time. We can't even name it or tell you what's going on. We're swimming in it every day, though, and it's influencing the way we think. And so we catch from all these things around us a lot of unbiblical views about men, women, male, female, about uh, all of these issues. We catch these things from the culture, and then we think that we've learned it somehow, like from the Bible. And we say it's a biblical view, even though it's not at all. We just caught it from the culture, and we're just repeating what we've seen and heard in culture without really giving it much thoughts. Um, and so we have to be careful of that too, that we don't pass off as a biblical view of these things without actually understanding what the Bible says or even what we're up against. Because then, again, like a lot of these conservative news shows are saying things that sound good, but they're very short-sighted. Like saying like the differences are only biological, physical differences that there isn't more to it than that. That's, that's short-sighted. Uh, and there's a danger for Christians to get caught up in talking that way. All right. Um, so how do we combat and help? Um, if someone's struggling with this, they need pastoral care and counseling. But again, you have to be careful with the counselor. This is where this gets really tricky. Because if you try to get the medical help or counseling help, 
You may be pushing them into someone who's going to tell them the opposite of what you're trying to help them with. Right? It's the same thing pastors have to be careful with marriage counselors for the same reason. Right? You send someone to a marriage counselor and they're like, oh yeah, you should just divorce them. Like, even though there's no biblical grounds for divorce. Oh yeah, just, just go ahead. It's, it's fine. It will make you happy. It's the same kind of thing here. We have to be careful. Um, but how do we respond to those we meet, to those who, Lord willing, come into our churches? Um, to be loving, I think, does not feed the liar delusion, but you seek to lovingly and patiently lead them to the truth. Um, I mentioned this before, but reiterate, we have to see them not as the enemy, but as people held captive that need to be freed. Just like you see someone caught in a false religion, you shouldn't see them as the enemy. You see them as prisoners of war. Right? And I think a lot of these people that we're going to come across are quite literally prisoners of war and need our help. Um, but part of it is that we have to be loving to them. Now, look, there are those who are actively pushing this stuff and are, are wicked with it, and we should rebuke them, and we should you know, oppose that. But for those who are caught up in this, who are just part of the carnage that's going on all around us, those are the people I'm more concerned about, because those are the people that might end up in our church. What do you do with someone who's had a surgery and comes into your church looking for help? Like, how do you help them? I mean, this is, these are the real issues I, I think we're going to face because we're already seeing this. There's people who have done these things and say, I regret this. But some of the things they've done cannot be undone, at least not 100% fully. Like, they'll never be what they were before. I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's really tragic. So, so how do we help them? Um, one of the things I, I think... We should do, if we know that someone is, is a male or a female, we know, then I think one thing we can't do is play the pronoun game. Um, I think you should just avoid using pronouns. Because otherwise, you're, they see it as confirmation that you agree with them. That's how they take it. And if you don't know, then, you know, whatever. you. Um, some people have said, and there's a discussion about this right now. Um, so for a while, there was this argument that hospitality requires us as Christians to use their preferred pronouns. And people are like, no, that's being a delusion. That's not helpful. But now there's a discussion going on. What about their names? Because people go by all kinds of names, like, you know, like nicknames, various names that they want to be called. And so there's a struggle right now. Christians are trying to, faithful Christians are trying to figure out, okay, can I use their name? Because people go by all kinds of names, but just avoid using the pronouns. Uh, and that's difficult, so I'm not going to solve all of that right now, but it's something we should wrestle through. But at the very least, I think we need to avoid pronouns because, you know, if someone asks you your pronouns, the, the proper answer is, uh, I don't play that game. God created male and female. Or if you, wanted to, if you had to do it like if you're at a job and you have to put it on the screen, put, like for me, I'd put like my king, my liege, my lord, and see if they, see if they, See if they call me that. See if anyone's... And if they don't, if they refuse to use it, I could say, well, that's how I identify. That's who I really am inside. I mean, or I, I know a friend who put up on there uh, that he was a T-Rex. And he told them, he literally told them this in the meeting. Uh, uh, it was in the secular world. It wasn't like a church thing. He said, I identify as a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, I think some of that, like, there's a place for that kind of thing. It, it is a mocking. There's a place for that to get people to realize how ridiculous what's, what you're doing is. Like, you have to be calculated with it and know what you're doing with it. But there is a place for that to show people that 
what you're asking me to do is ridiculous. Like, it doesn't, this isn't the real world. This isn't reality. Um, we're trying to unmask that they're, they're living in a false world with that kind of stuff. But for those who show up who are scared and mis- confused and misled, uh, we need to rescue them. And the first is the good Lutheran answer of long gospel, wisely applying these things to them in their situation. Um, look, here's the thing. If we refuse to call what they're doing a sin and uh, uh, going against God, then we're robbing them of confession and absolution. We're robbing them of forgiveness. When a church says, homosexuality is not a sin, I'm not going to tell them it's a sin, what you've said then is, Jesus didn't die for that, and they don't need to be forgiven. We have to be clear what we're talking about. The moment you say that, you're saying it's not a sin, and Jesus didn't die for it, which means you can't be forgiven for it. So you're robbing them of the forgiveness of sins. So we have to be clear, because we want them to be rescued. right? We, we want to love them, and part of love is leading them down the right path to figure out who they really are as God created them to be, not as they think they are. And I'm not saying that's going to be easy. None of this that I'm saying right now is easy, but it's what we have to do. Um, Part of it, too, I think, is recovering a biblical view of manhood and womanhood in our churches. Um, I have some recommended books on there uh, that cover this topic. We don't have time here. For kids, it's good to be a boy. It's good to be a girl are fun little books um, written by... Um, Spurgeon, if you didn't figure out, he's a, he's a Reformed Baptist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> with a name like Spurgeon, I don't know what else he could be. Um, but he is. Um, you've got Rebecca Curtis, and you might know the other author there, uh, Lady Light. Um, I think one of the best books, um, I don't think I have it on here, for women um, that I came across after doing all of this uh, is Eve in Exile. Is really fantastic. It's written by a reformed woman, but it's, it's one of the best, because she also goes through the history of feminism. Um, so it's a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. Jeff Hemmer's book, who's you know just 20 minutes south of us, his kids go to our school, Man Up. Um, Michael Foster, Non-Tenant, It's Good to Be a Man, which uh, we started last month with the men's breakfast, looking at some of that. So the best one, I think, for talking to people about this stuff is A.T. Walker's book at the bottom, God and the Transgender Debates. Um, he has a loving, faithful approach. So uh, those are some, some things that help with recovering those things that we need to recover. Um, I think part of it, too, is, and I think this is a really, really important part that we, we, we neglect to our own shame often, is we need to paint, and Klein is very good at this, talking about this, we need to paint a vision of what male and female what husband and wife, what families can look like in the church. doesn't mean we paint a vision that they're perfect, because that would be a lie. But what it can be, what it should be, what people are, when they talk about these things and they look and say, oh, that's what a loving community of families of men and women look like when they see the church. And they're drawn to that, because truth and beauty and goodness do draw people to itself. And so they're drawn to that and say, I want to be a part of that. Because they look at the communities of these I mean, honestly, like, this isn't meant with any malice or trying to be mean. Look at what's going on in these groups and tell me if that's something you would want to be a part of. Look at how they act in public and scream and rant and, like, the anger and the hatred and all of this. Would you want that or would you want this loving group of people who actually, like, want to help you through this? I mean, honestly, like, um, we want to be a place where sinners can wrestle through their sin, um, which includes confession and absolution. We cannot recreate them or fix things if they've mutilated themselves. 
but they can be made a new creation in Christ. We can promise that on the last day, their bodies will be perfectly fixed again, even if we can't fix them here and now. Um, And I think that's a conversation we're going to have to have with people. We can't fix that now, but we can help you, give you hope that it will be fixed, that one day all of these things will be made right. Uh, We must teach ourselves and our children what it means to be godly men and godly women, which should be then rooted in our baptisms. Like who you are as a male or female is first and foremost rooted in who you are in Christ and your baptism. Um, because it's only in him that we can fully be who God has called us to be. All right. Um, I'm going to stop there and take like questions. If people have questions, which I'm assuming probably is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if if people are watching, okay, so I don't know if you guys know the numbers. Um, I do from various studies, but people spend about seven to eight hours on social media a day, and uh, then several hours watching TV. So if you're spending ten to twelve hours, these are the averages. That means there's people that are watching more, right? That's the average. I don't have the exact numbers, I could look it up, but um, it's really high. And um, if, if that's what you're, if you're in that stuff way more than you are in your Bible or in church, I'm just gonna throw this out to everyone. Uh, don't kill the messenger, but if, you're, if you come on Sundays and never come on Wednesdays, you're missing half the sermons in this church. <laughs> and they're really good sermons on Wednesdays. Half, like honestly, like that's, that's half. And I'm not saying you have to come, I'm just saying, that is something that is there for your benefits. That's why it's offered. It's offered for your good as a midweek place of rest and refreshment and hearing God's word. Um, and if you only ever come on, on the weekends, then you're missing half of the sermons in the church. It's kind of staggering. And, and if you went to, I've, I've calculated this at my, at my previous congregation, um, and it'd be similar here. If you went to everything this church offered, if you went to... Uh, both the Sunday service, midweek service, Sunday morning Bible study, and even if you picked one other Bible study a week, you would spend less than 2% of your year in this place. You spend more time in the bathroom. (laughs) For real, you do. So when people say, I don't have time, and then you look at, swipe on your phone, like you can swipe right on your iPhone, it's to the left, and go to the bottom, it'll show you how much time you spend on your phone. Uh, Then start comparing those things, and you realize... I don't spend that much time there. Yes. Uh, the Good Shepherd staff just went to a professional development day um, in St. Louis, and one of the speakers he talks a lot about 
us not understanding the, the water we're swimming in. And he referred to the, the routines and the cycles we have in our life. The daily liturgies. The liturgies. Yeah. And, I mean, that, that vocabulary, the semantics there just really spoke volumes because this is what we're programming yeah. He was quoting James K. Smith because I talked to Zach about this. Oh, okay. uh, uh, you yeah. are what you love, which is a great yes, book. Which, yeah. yeah, it's a very good book. That's about how your daily liturgy shape the way you see the world um, and what you love, and then I mean, then apply that to the liturgy, right? What is what should be shaping the way you see the whole week is the divine service. Then you make this terrifying like reference to this movie. I don't know if somebody from the movie to where a demon leads these bad guys and they say, you know, hey, if you go into this room, I'm going to give you your heart's desire. Give you your heart's desire. And they're all about it until they get, you know, on the precipice when they're getting ready to step in and they realize, do I really want what my heart's desire is? Because it's not necessarily what I think it's going to be. Yeah. And it was just like causing you to really reflect and feel conviction with what would my heart's desire be if I walked into this room? Would it be Jesus? Right. That's why Saint Augustine says, uh, basically, love Jesus and do whatever you want. Because what he means by that is, if you if your heart is shaped by the love for Christ, then you can do whatever you want because it'll be in line with that love. <laughs> but the problem is, our hearts aren't always in line with that love, and so getting our hearts desire could be a really a tragic and awful thing. Yes. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me about this is you see a lot of parents that like. That push their kids into this gender thing. It's, it's not really the, the kids' uh, fault or, or it's their, not their desire. It's almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with Munchausen. Yeah, no, it is, absolutely, yeah. And, and it seems a lot like that. They're trying to push their kids into this uh, for their own glory or their own. Their own uh, yeah, so they can say, look how with it I am. I mean, I saw a video of this woman with her kid. Uh, is it from uh, TikTok? And she was trying to get her kid to say what she wanted her to say. And the kid, like, like rolled her, rolled their eyes and like clearly was not like in line. But they finally said it and then like mocked their mom and walked away. And I thought the kid's actually being more obedient to God than the mom, even though the kid was mocking his mother because it was insane. Like say this, you know, like and the kid just wouldn't do it. And finally, the kid did it like mockingly. Um, but it was, it, was, it was exactly that. It was clearly the mom was trying to manipulate this kid so they could show how cool they are to the world, how with it they are to have a trans kid. Yeah, it's the horrific. Is, these counselors are telling parents that their children will commit suicide if they don't have these surgeries. And so out of fear, yeah. they're consenting. So that, this is a big problem. You'll hear this all the time. Someone will commit suicide if you don't let them do this. Um, if they get real help, that's not true. In fact, they're putting that in the person's mind because people who have had the surgeries are still committing suicide, by the way, because they've realized what they've done to themselves. So don't buy that lie. Seek to get them real help. Thank <laughs> you. 